So, it's a blessing to see everyone, and we're going to be um, doing what technically will be a three-part mini-series um, as we um, enter into uh, Easter season. And you say three parts, there's two Sundays. We are gathering on Good Friday, as you know, for our praise service. And so at that point, we will also be giving some considerations to the Easter theme. But it's been a, a real... Um, encouragement to me to really kind of consider this mini-series, um, especially in the current climate that we live in. Um, I mentioned last week in the announcements, if you were here, um, we live in a, in a climate of fake news and alternative facts. And um, there have been many who have lamented at this, especially at the fact that Christians can be those who are most guilty of most quickly sharing fake news. Which in and of itself isn't a good look, right? I mean, being quick to share fake news, often with lots of opinion added, lots of consideration added, um, almost promotion um, added to it. And um, in social media culture, um, there have been those leaders within the church who have kind of lamented at this and said, look, we need to stop doing this because it undermines our credibility as Christians. It suggests that we are just entirely gullible and just prone to take anything that is put in front of us. And so what does that suggest about the very scriptures we believe and the, and the, the Lord in whom we believe? Isn't there an indirect inference that if we're so gullible as to just lap up and drink in fake news, that that just confirms the suspicion of the atheists? That says, well, you're only just behaving true to form. You're just acting totally in character because that's what you've done with the Bible. Lapped up that fake news. And so in that sense, it is an issue. But <laughs> we know that the Bible isn't fake news. But then some might say it is. What, what are the grounds upon which we would say that the Bible isn't fake news, but rather is facts? What would be the grounds upon which we would stand to declare and proclaim boldly that Jesus Christ is Lord? That Jesus Christ was crucified and on the third day rose again from the dead and has been given a name above it, all names. On what basis would we say that? Or are we among those who would say, you know, we believe the Bible because the Bible says we should. <laughs> There's a problem with that argument somewhere, right? They call that circular thinking. Why do you believe the Bible? Because the Bible says I should believe it. Hmm. Well, why do you believe the Bible when it says that you ought to believe it? And so, I'm trusting that the Lord would encourage our hearts that actually um, the ground upon which we stand is actually the rock of ages. That solid rock. Who is Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. The series is going to be um, featuring some insights from this book, which is available for £3. If you haven't already got one, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb by Val Grieve. And um, it is an absolutely excellent book. Even if you feel that you are familiar with these facts and you are familiar with this story and, you're and you feel as though you're somebody who has a reasonable answer if questioned why you believe in Jesus Christ, I would still commend this book to you. I would, Linda, I see you got the book. Have you read it though? You started, amen. It's a good book, am I lying? Has anybody else started reading the book? No, there's a few, there's a few. It's, it's very, very clear, simple, and powerful. 
powerful. Yes, as Mr. Tete would say, powerful. And so um, I, would, I would really encourage you to, to grab a copy of the book, Sunny Three Pounds, and when you've read it, give it to somebody else um, because it really is very accessible. And so let's pray and consider our verdict on the empty tomb today. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we do so because you are God and we are not. Truly, Lord, you've revealed yourself to us through your prophets of old, through your word, through the living word who is the ultimate expression of your being, the ultimate communication of your person. And Lord, we thank you that by your spirit, you have worked in our hearts to open our eyes and, our, and are continuing to open our eyes even wider to the truth of your Son. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us today to be encouraged in you, to be strengthened in you, that, Lord, you would cause us to be built up, and that, Lord, we would even be um, so encouraged that, Lord, we would go forth with a bold proclamation of Christ's Lordship. And we ask, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus Christ resurrected. Fake news or fact. Now, for those who have missed the, all of the commotion around fake news, fake news is something that has been of, of, of a, a real topic of discussion um, amongst social commentators and just generally, um, particularly within the context of social media. And there is good reason for it to be such a hot topic at the present moment. Fake news is any false information, false information knowingly or unknowingly presented as true. False information knowingly or unknowingly presented as true. Fake news is also that which denies the truth. Denies the truth. So there are websites that people have created and have presented them as news websites, as um, sort of um, social blogs where they're, they're commentating on social life and so on. And they've done so with the express intention of communicating fake news as if it were true. Now you might say, why would somebody do this? Why, like, get a life, surely? But in many cases, that's what people are trying to do. Because as they present this fake news, often fake news that is of a sensational manner, what they're doing is attracting people to their website to view their news and to click on associated links. And with all the views and clicks that they generate, they stand to make money. And so therefore, we see that there is definitely a motive towards personal gain that is um, behind a lot of it. Some of it is just done for, 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 the, for just sheer fun, just for joke just for laughs, as they say. There have been th those times where certain individuals have been reported as being dead. And as the news circulated by wild, like wildfire, the individual concerned tweeted in, um, I'm fully alive the last time I checked. <laughs> but again, every share 
every sensational passing on and promotion of this message results in people getting paid. At the same time, there are those who unknowingly promote fake news. Maybe from source, so they are somebody who actually has done a bit of shoddy journalism. They've not really been thorough and they've miscommunicated something in such a way that it's not true at all. And so people can unknowingly um, present fake news. Um, but then there are those who actually, they are just opposed to anything that they cannot control as far as news is concerned. So, we recognize that the recent um, election in the US was plagued by fake news um, on epic proportions. So Donald Trump was not only the subject of fake news, but also the promoter of it. In his very first press release, no, no doubt, claiming that the gathering in Washington was the, bigger, the biggest for any presidential inauguration. <laughs> it was the biggest for any presidential inauguration. And immediately you just begin to see pictures comparing Barack Obama's with, and you're kind of like, huh? And so not only was he the subject, he was said to have been endorsed by the Pope, which was fake news, and yet it was shared at least 70,000 times plus. And it is said that this fake news culture had a massive effect on the actual election that took place. The reality is that fake news undermines truth. Whichever way you look at it, it undermines truth. It can cause mass confusion, not just in isolated pockets. It can have serious effects on people's lives. It can even affect the destiny of a nation. In fact, the culture of fake news has become such an issue that the UK Parliament has launched an investigation in order to root out sources and try and stem the tide. Someone's tuning into fake news as we speak. <laughs> I swear that was a BBC, though. <laughs> That's all right. Check the facts. Check the facts, my sister. Check the facts. Amen. Or not. Not the alternative ones. But the thing is, fake news is not new. Those of you who are old enough will remember this headline. World War II bomber found on the moon. <laughs> now this is an actual news headline from the 24th of April, 1988. <laughs> Fake news isn't new, right? Like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah? In fact, if we go back to 1 John, we see this stated. And this is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple who walked with Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too 
may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in this, we get a sense that the Apostle John is trying to emphasize something here. It's not fake. This is reality that we're communicating to you. This is real events according to a real person in, real, in a real place in time. This isn't just something we had an idea about. This isn't just some philosophy that we dreamed up. This isn't just some ideology that we bought into. This is actual factual. No fake news. Starting from the beginning, what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. Reality. He said, is this that we proclaim also to you? No fake news here. And yet, even at the time of writing, as John was writing about the apostolic encounter with Jesus Christ. Even at the time of writing, he says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And in verses 21 and 22, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie, no fake, no alternative is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So he defines truth as being based upon and defined by Jesus Christ himself. And anyone who denies Jesus as the Christ is a liar, is promoting fake news and alternative facts. He goes on to say this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Even then, now think about this, come on now. If you heard a story that was really quite, <clears throat> quite, you know, um, impacting, maybe even sensational. I mean, we have to admit that the resurrection from the dead is a sensational truth. Now, if you were going to try and undermine that truth, if you were going to try and deny that truth, if you were going to try and promote an ideology counter to that truth, would you endeavor to do so whilst in the company of those who witnessed what they claim? Would you try and do it whilst in the company of those who are promoting the truth? If you were trying to, if you really wanted to get leverage, if you really wanted to get some kind of influence, you would try and Distance yourself as much as possible. Maybe even wait until these people have gone quiet. And yet, even within the lifetime of the apostles and all of the other witnesses of the life, death and resurrection of Christ, we recognize that people even then were trying to bring down the truth with falsehood. Now, there's a lesson in this for us, even just on a practical level. They say that the truth goes much further than a lie. A lie will soon die. <clears throat> Songwriter said the truth goes marching on. And the reality is that even in our own lives, there will be instances and issues that we will have to contend with. People who may be seeking to slander us and assassinate our character, 
people who may be seeking to spread rumors and lies about our name. You know what? There are certain times when you just have to, like the psalmist say, Lord, please vindicate me. Expending effort and energy trying to ex extinguish every lie and rumor that may be spread about you can often be a very futile effort. But you can be assured that people will do it. People will do it. And often, most often, they will do it behind your back. They're not ready to come and stand in your company and say what they've got to say. But they will do it behind your back where they get a little more leverage. <laughs> where they get a little bit more mileage under the cover of darkness. The Lord sees and knows all things. And in due season, even if you hold your peace, the Lord will vindicate you. Amen to that. And so trust him. And there's also a warning to us who would be inclined to gossip and slander and spread half-truths and fake news and alternative facts. Now you might say, you might say, but where do I find myself in that place? How often do we find ourselves in a place where we're talking people's business that's not been substantiated? That's not been verified? We're talking hearsay and rumor, talking gossip. Come on now. You see? We ourselves can find ourselves in a place where it's easy to point the finger and you know, laugh at the news agencies and Donald Trump, you know, calling all the news companies, you're all fake news. And da -da -da. But what about us when we're prone to spread fake news? Because if it's not something that has been substantiated as true, if it has not been verified, if you've not spoken to both parties, Proverbs says, a person sounds right until the other one states their case. Amen. So it's best you hold your peace and let the Lord be true and every man a liar. And you see, the thing is, we see that this fake news business is so old, it goes right back to the garden. And who was the, the first purveyor of fake news? Huh? Mm. All right then. Mm. The slimy one, the slivery serpent. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's where it... So anytime we're engaging in that and anytime we're participating in that, who, who are we siding with? Who are we cooperating with? Whose agency are we promoting? Oh, oh, amen. Thank you. And so, from the beginning, what was it? God speaks truth. He does not lie. Forgive me. He cannot lie. It's not in his nature. You ever see that film, was it Liar Liar? With Jim Carrey? And I can't remember what happened to him. Oh, his son made a birthday wish. And then he woke up one day as a lawyer, you know. A lawyer. Oh, my gosh. I said he was a, he was a, he was, yes, he was both. But on this particular day, he couldn't tell a lie. The man would swear to his own hurt. Now, you see, the thing is, I wouldn't even say that's an example of God's inability to lie. Because the reality is that liar, liar, wanted to lie. He, he, he was scribing into the, the desk. He was holding his jaw. You know, Jim Carrey's animated already. <laughs> he wanted badly to lie. God doesn't even want to lie. 
And so we know that it's not in God's nature to lie. He cannot lie. He only deals with facts. And so in this era of fake news, let's consider, actually, these claims concerning God's revealing himself in Jesus, these claims concerning the resurrection from the dead, can they be anything other than hashtag facts? Now, I said last week, you know what, I rejoice in this season that we're in. Because people are being challenged to be more vigilant as to how they evaluate information. They have to be more critical as they process news stories and other information. And so even though on one hand it seems like it's a threat to the gospel, on the other hand I believe it's a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. A wonderful, because listen, it's all facts. And we don't even have to try and convince anyone. We just point them in the right direction of the facts and let them look for themselves. Let them critically analyze the message of Christ. And as you'll see, there are a number of individuals, all of whom are of the profession where they are trained for years to analyze information, to analyze evidence, to seek to establish facts beyond reasonable doubt. Many of those from the legal profession have endeavored to go out and disprove the truth of Christ. Only to come to a place where they had to just humble themselves and bow the knee and say, as much as I was trying to disprove this, I can't. Because the more I look into it, the more I'm convinced it's true. And these are not just what you might call laymen, what you might call even students of the law. These are professors of law. The truth is there to be ascertained. Now, there's a website called the um, Huffington Post, which is a, um, a credible news agency. I wouldn't say real, I'd just say credible um, news agency. And um, they have these kind of pointers as to how to recognize a fake news story. And so trying to inform people, you know, use these um, as your, your means of critical evaluation. Read past the headline, number one. Check what news outlet published it. Check the published date and time. Who is the author? Look at what links and sources are used. Look out for questionable quotes and photos. Beware confirmation bias. Search if other news outlets are reporting it. Think before you share. So you've got these, these nine points. And I said, okay, look, if we were to take the core principles here and endeavor to use them to consider the fact Jesus Christ, tortured, crucified, resurrected, how would we fare? And so we're going to look at what is the news outlet? the published date and time, and what links and sources are used. Um, the other four, despite my dodgy numbering, <laughs> for those who are paying attention, <laughs> it's psychological. I didn't want you to think there were just too many points. <laughs> we'll look at the others next time. You know the source. I read it. It's me, it's me. <laughs> so what is the news outlet concerning the message of Christ's death and resurrection? Well, we understand that it's the Bible, primarily. Yeah? God offered the scriptures through men who were moved by his spirit 
<clears throat> and in doing so, they communicated the truth of God through their personalities as they witnessed and experienced it. And so I say, okay, you could stop there for many people. The Bible's the source, okay, that's wonderful. That is authoritative, conclusive, irrefutable, it's inspired by God, and so why do we even need to ask further questions? But the reality is that most people don't think that about the Bible. And so I would say we therefore have to consider the reliability and integrity of the scriptures. And as we do that, we're able to consider also, okay, when were they published? During what time period? Um, and I'd also add a few extra tests, because we can. Because it doesn't matter how many tests you apply to the Bible, it's going to stand up to it. And so, okay, what kind of quantity of... Um, material was published as far as the Bible was concerned, specifically the Gospels. And what kind of consistency? Was it, you know, robust, credible, or was it flimsy? Is that how it was regarded? And so, if you could see that. Here we have a chart that compares are manuscripts of ancient writings, of which, just from a basic historic point of view, the Bible, the Gospels factor as. Yeah? So if you're looking at it pre-Christian experience, and you're saying, okay, the Bible's a book, it's an ancient book, and as an ancient book, how does it compare to other ancient books in order to try and evaluate its credibility. We see, first of all, that <clears throat> the manuscripts concerning Caesar, Julius Caesar of Rome, um, were written, um, the, the, what they call the autograph. So let me explain. In, in ancient documents, you have two types of ancient document. You have what's known as the autograph. And as the name would suggest, it's that which is written by the original hand of the author. And then after the autograph, you have manuscripts. And manuscripts are copies that are made of the original. Yeah. We see in the second column, um, after Caesar's name, that the, the autograph was written 100 to 44 BC. Yeah we see that the earliest manuscript copy was written 900 AD. So remember, you go from BC, you count down, and you get to AD, and you count up. So there is a time span between the manuscripts and the original autographs of about a 1,000 years. I want to let it sink in for a little bit. Yeah? Autograph, uh, around 44 to 100 BC. About a thousand years later, they started to make copies of the autograph. And how many copies did they make? That's, a, that's not rhetorical. They made how many, how many copies? The last column. So that tells you the number of manuscripts, yeah? The, yeah, well, the number of manuscripts that there have been available. So, if you were going to consider the reliability, would you suggest that it is better for it to have a shorter space of time between the autograph and the manuscript, or a longer space of time? It's not a trick question. Sure. Okay, And would you suggest that it would be better to have more manuscripts or less if you wanted to really test the reliability? All right, so you only got 10 after a 1,000 years. You look at Plato, 
original 427, 347, fundamentally 1,200 years, and there's seven manuscripts. These are people that are, you couldn't deny, are influential, absolutely and fundamentally influential in our life and times. And at least on Western culture, if not beyond, in some way or another. Yeah? Plato, the philosopher, yeah? Then you have Thucydides, 1,300 years, eight manuscripts. Tacitus, we'll hear a little bit about him next week, yeah? A thousand years between manuscript and autograph, but there was eight of them. Suetonius, 800 years. Ah, oh, well, it's coming down a little bit. But then there were eight of them. Homer. So if you went to university and studied classics, you would have read Homer's Iliad. Some of you, if you were in grammar school, might have touched it for A-levels. 500 years, hmm, okay. Still a long time, right? Half a century, um, half a uh, uh, millennium. Five centuries. What was happening in Britain five centuries ago? Five centuries ago, not 50 years ago. Huh? So that gives you a kind of sense of perspective. Now we get to the New Testament and we begin to see something quite from the outset. So first of all, we see that the autographs were written around between 40 and 100 AD. They say that the first of the Gospels appeared around 40 AD. Now, let me just ask you this. That might seem like, oh, that's, that's quite a healthy figure. But why would we say that? When was Jesus crucified, roughly? All right, so the AD era started with Christ's birth. We Go on. Uh-huh. Right. So there is, there is a little bit of negotiation as to the exact time, but we know that the, the beginning of the AD era generally marks, is marked by the, the birth of Christ. Yeah? So there, there is, if you want to get deeper into it, people say actually with refined examination, it may be about actually 4 BC, but it's just a few years difference. Yeah? So Jesus was crucified around, let's say, to be generous, 30 AD. How long after his crucifixion and resurrection was the first manuscript? Did the first? Ten years, roughly. So if you had people who were eyewitnesses, who were peers of Christ, even of the same age, within the same age range, they might have been about 45 at that time. Still full-blooded. <laughs> Says a 45-year-old man. <laughs> With sense. <laughs> so we see there's 10 years, and it would have been within the lifetime of the witnesses. Do you know how substantial that is in terms of the credibility it's not a thousand years, it's not even 500. It's within the lifetime of the witnesses. So as these stories were being written, any one of the witnesses could have been questioned. Anyone could have just gone to Mary and said, hold on, Mary, did it really happen like that? Anyone could have gone to John, anyone? It was within the lifetime of the witnesses. Likewise, it was within the lifetime of those who may have wished to contest it. 
So people start writing these things about Jesus and they start circulating in the area. It's like somebody start writing about Lewisham and the changes in Lewisham over the past few years and they start circulating the information on you know, local blogs and so on. If there's misinformation, local people are going to be quick to say, hold on, it didn't go like that. When they started all of this building, they never moved the river. What are you talking about they moved the river? The river flooded. Ask Ecclesia. But they didn't move it. Within the lifetime, it's able to be contested. And yet we see that it went on. And we see that the earliest copy was within 25 to 50 years. The earliest manuscripts, yet again, was within the lifetime of the witnesses. So if you want to consider an ancient document as whether it's credibility, if it's accurate, if it's true, if it's faithful, just that in and of itself is a great weight of evidence to say, actually, within those time frames, it's unreasonable to suggest that these documents would have continued to exist in the form that we have them without notable changes being marked. Significant facts being contested. These are the scriptures in which we trust. Now, can somebody please tell me how many manuscripts we see? Was that 240, yeah? That was 2,400, yeah? 24,000. 24,000. There, there are no manuscripts that even compare. They don't even compare. They don't even, they're not even in the same league. This is like Premier and... Well, I don't even know how the leagues work now. Non-league, not even semi-pro, Sunday league. <laughs> now, again, the significance of the number of manuscripts, as these manuscripts are spreading, if changes were made with so many manuscripts being spread, and we're talking about significant, notable changes, that actually affected the content in terms of its meaning. If there were changes of that nature that were made, because there are so many copies, it would become evident that fake news has been introduced into the cycle. You imagine if newspaper goes out, it sells 50,000 copies in its first edition, and then it goes back and runs a second edition, but there's an update in the news. And the update, they publish a clarification, an amendment. But they don't run so many copies of the second edition in comparison to what they did. 50,000 went out in the first edition. They do 10,000. Do you think that it's not going to be evident to anyone who picks up a newspaper on that day, in that week, in that month, even archived? You know, you go to libraries and you can access newspapers or you can go on websites now and access, and you'd be able to see the difference very clearly. So when people say, oh, you know, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible's been changed, you just have to say, really? Um, at, at, at what point was it changed then? I mean, that's even before you even ask them what aspect of it was changed. Because as soon as you ask them if they've read it, you know you're just going to get that deer in the headlights, glazed look, <laughs> mumbling. Well, yeah, well, you know, well, um, one time, the book of Revelation is scary, isn't it? With so many manuscripts being circulated, it would be evident if changes were introduced because there are so many others to compare it to. And so this is why even with 
the minor incidental changes that have fundamentally no impact on the meaning of the content. We're aware of those changes. There are what they call scribal errors. So errors such as the copyist writing, following the line, and then making the mistake of picking up a word from the next line. Often we do that when we're transcribing from a, a book to a, a, a computer and we make typos. That's what we understand them to be. There were typos. But the thing is, there were so many correct copies that the typos were evident. And so on a basic level, we recognize that the, the timing of the publishing of the New Testament manuscripts, the quantity of the manuscripts is such that it only gives the utmost confidence that we're able to look at this as being true beyond reasonable doubt. Now, when you're looking at the past, that's the most that you can do because you can't go back in time. And so this is the rule of law. This is the principle of law that in a court of law, they endeavor to establish that which is true beyond reasonable doubts. Fundamentally, everyone applies faith. It's just a matter of what you want to put your faith in. I know where I want to put my faith, that which is most evidently credible and reliable. Now, what about the consistency of the writings of the Gospels? There's too much to be said about this. Let me just give you a quote from this gentleman. Professor, doctor, doctor, <laughs> doctor, Simon Greenleaf. To say my man was a don is an understatement. Three doctorates, his first from Harvard. This man is recognized as being one of the most important personages in the, Western, the legal system of the Western civilization. He wrote a, 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 what they call a tome, three volume. You know, some of you remember um, the Oxford Dictionary. I know some of you are too young, you just go on Google, right? Oxford Dictionary in it, so three volumes like the, the original Oxford Dictionary called a treatise on the law of evidence. My man is the authority on, on how legal evidence ought to be viewed, handled, assessed, and defined. And this man was a Christian. And he wrote a book called the testimony of the evangelist examined by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. Catchy title, right? <laughs> Just from the title alone, you know that this book is weighty. <laughs> and in his book, he said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are good men. Testifying to that which they had carefully observed and considered and well knew to be true. They hide nothing. And so in this, we see that this is the, the testimony of an individual who's not just trained in law, who, who's not just one who practices law, but one who is an architect of the legal system. You see, we see that the credibility of the scriptures, just as historical documents, is actually superior to any other work of antiquity. Any, sorry, any other ancient literature. There is no ancient literature that compares to the quality and credibility of the Gospels. If you can't trust the Gospels, you can't trust nothing. 
You can't trust anything. People use phrases like, and, and I say people in general, worldly people, atheists, secular, they will say things like, and that's gospel, as a figure of speech. That's, that phrase didn't come about by accident. It's because the gospels are so robust in their credibility that even in times past, the people recognize that actually there's nothing more credible. So if somebody says they don't trust the Bible, they don't trust Jesus, they don't trust the gospels and the accounts of Christ, then ask them, what do you believe? And then when they tell you, ask them why. Why do you believe that? Now, when we consider the third point of our examination, what links and sources are used? Now you might think, well, that's just got, you know, um, new school application, but this is the thing, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, we have to understand that it didn't come out of the blue. It's not something that was without some kind of original um, prediction or original um, intimation that this was gonna happen. It wasn't something that just came by surprise to those who were of the culture in a complete and utter sense. It definitely took the disciples by surprise because of the gruesome death that Jesus suffered. They didn't expect him to come back. They didn't expect anyone to come back from that. And this also lends itself to its credibility. We'll come back to that. But consider this. Jesus himself, this is... <laughs> This is the authority of Jesus Christ. He himself predicted to his disciples, not just that he would die, but that he would rise again. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the fact that he predicted that he would die, but you might have kind of missed the memo on the fact that Jesus actually predicted that he was going to rise again from the dead. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Someone says they're going to be killed they're going to die, but they're going to come back from, they are going to come back from the dead. Come on now. Does that even sound sensical? <laughs> right. <laughs> Utterly nonsensical. It doesn't make sense that somebody would even hazard to predict. I mean, we can all predict that we're going to die, right? Because we know it's going to happen at some point. Although Jesus was much more specific than that. Look, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. So he predicted where he was going to be killed and by whom. And on the third day, be raised. Not even that he's going to come back from the dead. But even when he's going to come back from the dead, on the third day, such is the authority of Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh, come on, you are just sleeping today. I don't, under, I don't understand. Listen. This in and of itself is phenomenal. Even more so, the fact that it happened just as he said. Huh. We can take it back before that. In Ezekiel 37, we see uh, an intimation in the time of the Old Testament prophets, um, um, among which there are many, that gives reference to the expectation of a bodily resurrection. A bodily resurrection, not just a resuscitation, a bodily resurrection. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. 
And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know, wise brother. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so we see clearly here a picture of bodily resurrection. It was being used as a metaphor concerning Israel and so the immediate context isn't the Lord God saying, this is what's going to happen in the future with people in a general sense, my people. The primary sense is, this is what's going to happen to my people Israel. Those who are not a nation will be a nation. Speaking of the <clears throat> renewal in Christ Jesus. But nonetheless, the metaphor that is being given would clearly have spoken to the recipients as being a credible picture of that which the Lord God can do. In fact, with Abraham in Genesis 22, when he's instructed by God to take Isaac, his son, and sacrifice him on the altar, Hebrews 11 gives us this insight says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, why is that such a big thing? Why does that speak of bodily resurrection? If Isaac was the son of promise through whom all of his offspring shall be named, Abraham was going to kill Isaac on the basis that God would raise Isaac himself from the dead and allow him to have children. Not as a ghost, as a duppy, as a jinn, but as a person to come back and have children. This is what Abraham's expectation was. Old Testament that God would raise the dead. Now we understand that Isaac is a type of Christ. As Abraham took Isaac to the top of the hill, Golgotha, the same hill that Christ was crucified on. Abraham's love for Isaac. Oh, listen, come on now. You're going to get me start running around the church you know? I'm going to get old school on you. Listen, hold on, hold on. Abraham, right? The first time that the word love is used in the Bible is of Abraham's love for his son, Isaac. The first time it's used in the Bible is of Abraham's, this is my beloved son. <laughs> Lord of mercy. <laughs> you are not ready today, I'm telling you. Listen. Prof Thank you. Listen. God is powerful. Awesome in his wonder. His wisdom knows no end. The detail. Come on now. The detail. I feel like I'm at God corner. I want to bang this out of merch. Listen. Listen. This is the um, scholar D.A. Carson. He said, it is clear that those of the Old Testament era had the full expectation of a bodily resurrection from the dead. There's no mistake in that. Especially when we see such a scripture speaking of the Messiah in Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a 
prophetic foreview of the fact that the Messiah was not going to remain dead, but would be raised. Amen? Hmm. This is some thousand years before Jesus. And so the very act itself, the very event itself of Jesus being raised from the dead was not something that was without forewarning. It was spoken of in the prophets. It was spoken of in times past and predicted. And in this we see the reason why there is salvation in no one else. The reason why there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Must be saved. There is no salvation apart from Christ. None. And yet, that is not for anyone. Everyone needs to be saved. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is non-negotiable. We are called to put our faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And we have good reason. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to give an answer when asked the reason for the hope that is within you. Always be ready to give an answer when asked the what? The reason, not just what you believe, but why do you believe? Always be ready to give an answer. Are you ready to give an answer? Are you ready to give an answer? You step out of here, and someone asks you, you're a Christian, right? You go to church today. So what, you talking about that Jesus guy, yeah? Why? why? Why do you even follow Jesus? Why do you even believe this book called the Bible? Are you ready to give an answer? When eternity hangs in the balance. Some of us are more proficient at spreading fake news than we are the good news. And we need to repent. Because we spend more time talking soap operas and gossip and reality TV and all kind of things other than the good news. We need to be ready. And in order to be ready, you get ready. It's a process. For some, it's a longer one than others. As my wife keeps reminding me. Hmm. Let him who has ears to hear. <laughs> it's, that's right, it's me fear. I can't, you know what? I think there's only been, I think there's only been one time in my life that my wife has ever kept me waiting. And it wasn't even on our wedding day. You know, like Brad's prerogative and all that. One time. Don't ask how many times. <laughs> the other way around. Lord have mercy. And so, I'm going to invite the team to come back. And um, I'm going to challenge you. Get familiar with the truth. Not just what we believe. It's not just enough, it's not enough to just throw scriptures at people. 
because we have so much more to say with regards to the credibility of our convictions. But we must remember that eternal life is in the balance. It's so important that we get the good news right. We declare Christ. Tortured, crucified, resurrected. Let's stand. Father God, I do thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, for the way in which you have, just as you promised, just as you predicted, caused your word to endure, even to the extent that not one comma or full stop would pass away. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you faithfully fulfilled all of the predictions of the coming of the Messiah, even those that spoke of his death and rising from the grave. Jesus, you even predicted this yourself in your own words. Hallelujah. We bless you and give you thanks. We give you glory and honor, Lord God. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be established in this truth, that we wouldn't be given to fake news and alternative facts and all kinds of teachings, ideologies, philosophies and doctrines, but that, Lord, we would be centered and established on the truth that you have revealed, that you have granted to us, that we would be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Have your way, Lord, and forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for those things that we've spoken that we ought not to have spoken. Even for those occasions when, Lord, we've not studied to show ourselves approved, we've misrepresented you. Lord, we live in an information age where knowledge is at our fingertips. We've got no excuse to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, have mercy. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to exploit the resources that you've put at our disposal, that we might represent you faithfully. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.